You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. My name is Carrie. I'm the pastor of Connection and Discipleship here at Cypress Church, and uh, grateful to get to hang out with you guys again and share from God's Word with you. Uh, like Anna mentioned, uh, Mike's off hanging out with his new grandbaby, so he is not missing us. You'll, he's probably missing us a little bit, but he's having a great time with his family. So um, up here, uh, my beautiful wife Emily is down here in the front, married five years and loving it, and that's our little baby Ethan. He's, uh, he's still asleep at this point, which is his most peaceful mode. So we, <laughs> we love that. We'll see if my preaching uh, wakes him up and makes him cry. You can laugh. Feel free to laugh if that happens. But uh, um, join with me in a word of prayer as we dive in to God's word here together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and how it gives us truth. It helps us understand how things actually are. And God, we're grateful that you've given it to us to help us know how to live, how to interact, how to do this life, because life can be hard. Um, we thank you for these tips you've given us, and we thank you for the life that you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to be jumping in here. Um, one thing that Mike talked about last week was being a fan. And then the week before that, he talked about food. And honestly, I think Mike talks about food most of the times that he's up here in the pulpit. So, <laughs> which I, I'm totally in favor of because when it comes to being a fan, I am a really big fan of delicious food. So I'll just say that and wrap all of where we've been into one nice little bow and say I'm a great fan of food. And one of the things uh, I got to eat recently was Korean barbecue. Has anyone been to Korean barbecue? Oh, so delicious. I love it. Man, where have you been all my life is when I first ate it. Okay, so one time I was at Korean barbecue place with a friend of mine. He's a Korean guy, David Kim, and he's like, I know this place to go. It's so good. So we went there. We're sitting around eating with a bunch of friends. And after like the third quarter, course of pork belly, I look up and I'm like, this is so good. And I look around and I realize, oh man, out of the dozens and dozens of people in this restaurant, I am the only non-Asian person here. <laughs> man, okay. And, and I remember feeling, huh, how do I feel about that? This is an interesting feeling I'm not used to feeling uh, that often. Interesting. So I kind of just tucked it away and enjoyed the rest of our meal and had a great time with my friends. And then it made me think back again to a time where I went to church with my friend Lydia Fung, and it was a church full of Chinese Christians. And again, I was in a church singing praises, and I looked around and I realized, I'm the only white guy here. Whoa, I wonder, I wonder as I think back on that, is this how some people feel in the churches I go to? that don't belong to the majority culture of those churches. Is this how that feels? Now, I, I didn't feel unwelcome. I had a great time. I had friends there. It was awesome. But it was just an interesting experience for me to, to, to go through, to think, huh, I wonder if that's what this feels like. And so as we dive into God's Word together, um, like I mentioned in last service, uh, last time I was up here, I got to preach about... Uh, spiritual gifts and tongues and stuff, and then I ended up speaking about dancing and drinking. And so 
I'm going to speak, we're, this, this today, we're going to be speaking about multi-ethnic ministry. So I'm just touching all the hot-button issues here. So <laughs> um, just join along with us here. Um, the question before us today, as I went through those experiences, is um, we are in a sermon series now that's called One. It's about the unity of the church. And as we talk about the unity of the church, yes, theologically unified, yes, we all follow the same Savior, but what does it look to be like? Like in all of our different ethnic backgrounds and nationalities, how do we be one in that too? What does it look like for the church to be unified in that way? And so that's the question we come to scripture with this morning. How does God want us to include Christians from cultures different than ours? What does God say about that? How do we do that? Because honestly, when I look at our nation, I think we're having some tough times with different racial issues, right? We're having some tough times with different ethnic groups getting along together. And it's tough. What do we do? How do we make this work? And the Christians in the first century had these same questions. So going deep, getting real, we're going to be diving into God's scripture this morning, learning what God has to say. And we're going to be like the rest of our series this fall in chapter uh, in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was written by the... um the guy named Luke. He was a doctor. And he's writing Acts, when we look in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing it to this guy named Theophilus. It's kind of a mouthful. Theophilus uh, is the guy who's receiving Luke's letter. And as we look back at the gospel of Luke, that Luke also wrote, and these are two parts of the same work that's just been split it up. And so he put those two together and we say, why did you write both of these volumes, Luke? Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Theophilus has already been taught things about Jesus. He's probably a Christian. And if not, he's already pretty far along in his road and his journey towards accepting Christ and following after him as a God-fearer. So Theophilus is a Christian guy, but why would he care about issues about race, about ethnicity when it comes to spiritual things? Why would he care? Well, because Theophilus was a Gentile man. He was a non-Jewish guy. And so when he's picking up the scriptures and reading through Luke, he's like, hmm, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and he did a bunch of ministry in the Jewish area, and he taught about the Old Testament, and he talked about fulfilling the Mosaic law, (laughs) and all of his disciples were Jews. And then when he died and rose again in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, that's where Christianity started, all by his Jewish disciples spreading the good news. So where do I fit? As a non-Jewish guy in this movement, do I even belong in that? And if I do, what do I got to do to get into that? So these are the questions that Theophilus is wrestling with, and they're the questions that Luke is going to write about in the book of Acts to help answer. So we'll flip back to the book of Acts, and uh, you'll notice uh, if anyone's reading through our handy fall campaign devotional, This has been awesome. Anyone enjoying this? This has been so great. Um, There's a bunch of memory verses in here, too, to memorize. And uh, the first one is Acts 1.8. And it is really the theme of the whole book of Acts. It talks about how the disciples, the believers of Jesus, will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes on them, and that they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's three things, three sections of Acts in these that that talks about. 
And we've already moved through a bunch of them. So Theophilus is sitting here. He's reading through the book of Acts. Imagine he's got this letter from Luke. And then he's reading through it. He gets through all the way through chapter 11. And gosh, things have been going great for him and his people, the Gentiles. The people in Samaria started to get saved. There was an Ethiopian eunuch that got saved. And then Peter, like we talked about with uh, Pastor Mike, shared with us last Sunday, Cornelius, this Roman uh, military official, He's not a Jew. He gets to end up saved and all of his household and his whole family. And so things are going great. So Theophilus is just reading this and he's having a great time. He's saying, man, my people are getting saved. My people are being included. Oh, this is good stuff. So he's enjoying this. But we end up getting to the place where Theophilus asks the question, okay, Gentiles are in. This is great news. But I still have lingering questions. What does it look like to be included? And what does that mean? Is there anything I have to do to be one of those included Gentiles in God's new people? Um, so we're going to discover Luke's answers in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. So if you've been reading your fall devotional, you've gotten right up to about that point. And uh, if you um, have a Bible with you, I'd love if you could follow along with us in Acts 13. If you need a Bible, our ushers have some in the back, and they're going to be running and grabbing a few, bringing them down the aisles. Just raise your hand and give them a shout out and say, hey, I'd like to borrow one. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Acts 13.1. Okay, so we're looking to answer this question that Theophilus had, and honestly a lot of us have too. How does God want his church to include Gentile believers? How do we do this right? So chapter 13, verse 1. First, we see there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Okay, so this is the leadership of the Antioch church. Who's in it? One, Barnabas. This was a Jewish guy from Cyprus. Now, it's not Cyprus, California. (laughs) That didn't exist way back here, right? This is Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean. So he's, he's from out of town. Simeon, who is called Niger. Now, Niger is a surname that's Roman, it's Latin, and it refers to the province that was in the northern, North African area. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like a last name, like Kaufman is my last name, it's a German name from Germany. So that's a little bit on him. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is also a region of a Roman province in northern Africa. Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. So he was a foster brother to King Herod Antipas, who ended up trying Jesus and beheading John the Baptist. So Menaean comes down from the Judean area where the Jews are hanging out. And this guy named Saul, you may have heard of him. Saul was the guy back in chapter 9 of Acts who ended up having this dramatic 180 turnaround. Used to be the number one enemy of the Christian church, killing people. And then God said, nope, you're going to be my appointed apostle to the Gentiles. You are my man that's going to share the gospel, God's words, to all those Gentile nations. And so Saul's in the mix there too. Saul will eventually go by the name Paul. So don't get confused too much by those. That's just two different names for the same guy. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. He uses them differently depending on which audience he talks to, to be culturally blending in. So we've got all these guys. So all to mention, do you notice what's happening in this leadership board of this church in Antioch? Only half of them are Jewish. They've got Gentile leaders in there at the highest level of Christian leadership. Not only that, 
only Menaean was actually born and raised in the Judean uh, neighborhoods near Jerusalem. Everyone else is from out of town all over the world. So we've got the most diverse, most ethnically mixed leadership board of a church ever in history yet. So they're doing great pioneering stuff. Next, we see in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him and sent him off. So not only are they so open to having a multi-ethnic leadership board, but they're actually really interested and willing to respond to God's call to be on a mission to the Gentiles too. And so they send them off, and this is actually the first recorded intentional missions trip in history. So there you go. They're setting all sorts of new records and precedents. Awesome. So... Paul and Barnabas go off on the missions trip. We're not going to do the whole missions trip here on Sunday morning because that would take a long time. We'd have to read two whole chapters. But suffice to say, they had a great time. You'll see a map on the screen that just shows kind of the directions of where they headed around in that ancient world. And then they came back to Antioch in chapter 14, verse 26. So we're going to pick up the story back there. As one to two years later, as they're coming back into their home church, their sending church. From there, they sailed to Antioch. I'm in chapter 14, verse 26, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had been fulfilled. Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered in the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Oh, man. So this is good news. They're coming back and saying, guys, you can't imagine. We went all over the world, all over this part of this world, and we met so many Gentiles, and a ton of them were getting saved. A ton of them got welcomed into God's church. This is so great. And imagine how the Antioch Christians that are receiving their missionaries back are feeling. Yes, it was a success. We sent them out. They came back. People got saved. God is at work. He's using our church. This is so cool. Have you ever felt like this? You're coming back from a missions trip. You're like, oh man, I just got back from India or from Ecuador or from Mexico or whatever. And I got to see God working and he used us to do it and people are welcomed in. It was so great. I just prayed with the second grader in Amazing Wednesdays and they wanted to know Jesus. All of our students just got baptized at Hume Lake. I talked to my neighbors the other week and they wanted to know more about God. God is working. Oh, this is so great. Man, this is how they would have felt. So, imagine how they feel when this whole house crumbles down, when everything falls apart. A storm brews. Chapter 15, verse 1. What happens? Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What? Imagine how this would feel to hear. This would be like a a window bursting open, an icy cold wind flushing through a warm house. It would just deflate all these Gentile Christians. And imagine how Theophilus is feeling, a Gentile man reading this account saying, what? These Judean Christians that came up from Jerusalem, they're saying, whoa, whoa, you guys, don't you know how God works? For centuries, God has been 
part of our people. And he gave us way back in Genesis 17, the law of circumcision. And then Moses gave us all the Old Testament laws that we had to follow. And following these things set us apart for God. It made us special to him. This is how God works. And, and all throughout our Jewish history, if someone wanted to know God, they had to become a Jew, Jewish person, politically, mentally, physically, culturally. You had to join the Jewish nation lock, stock, and barrel if you wanted to know God. Don't you guys know your history? So, uh, excuse me, sir. I'm, I'm Barnabas. Uh, this is my friend Paul. You might, you might remember us when we came down to Jerusalem a few years back. We delivered a bunch of relief aid to you guys when you had a famine. Um, we're really excited that the top brass from Jerusalem, uh, has sent some guys up here to talk to us, but, but you gotta understand, this is like a stab in the back. Don't you see all these Gentile Christians around here? Oh, yeah, yes, we agree. Uh, Gentiles can be saved, but they need to become Jews first in order to do so. Wait, what? How can you say that? No, no, don't get us wrong. We believe that Gentiles are included in Christ's church. They just need to talk like, act like, and look like us Jewish people to do so. What? So, as you can imagine, this didn't go over real well. <laughs> wow. There was a lot of conflict here. And in verse 2, we see that after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They go straight to the spiritual center of Judaism and now the spiritual center of Christianity to get to the bottom of this. What is truly the right way to do this. What does God want? Now they pass through in verse 3 a couple regions, Phoenicia, Samaria, describing all the great things they saw on their missions trip to the Gentiles. And people are encouraged as they go by. A lot of Gentile people are. But there's still this ominous cloud hanging over them. Man, have you ever had a team at work that, man, you guys are just terrific. You're crushing it. It's so great. And then your boss comes in and says, oh, your funding's cut, by the way. You're all going to be moved to different projects. Or you've been working with your kid, and man, he's been doing better, or she's been improving, and then suddenly you get a call from the principal again. And you think, man, you're just deflated. And you think, God, I thought we were doing this right. God, I thought you were working here. What's going on? Imagine how these believers felt. So they're moving down to Jerusalem. They get there. They're welcomed, but things get even worse. Verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, do you notice something here? We're going down to the heart of the people who believe this. And what does it say that they are? They're part of the party of the Pharisees. Do you remember those guys? from the Gospels. Jesus is walking around in his earthly ministry and he's constantly having to confront the Pharisee party and saying, guys, you're heaping all these extra religious rules onto the people. You're giving them all these unnecessary religious burdens that they have to carry out and you don't need to do that. And so these folks are part of the Pharisee party, but look what it also says in verse five. They're believers. They are Christians, saved Christians following Jesus. And yet they still have 
these remnants from the Pharisee party trickling into their beliefs. So Christians disagreeing with Christians from different ethnic backgrounds, different theological backgrounds, different regions. We've just got all We've got all the ingredients for a major conflict, right? (laughs) There's so much in conflict here. So what do we do? Man, these Jewish uh, uh, Pharisee Christians were saying, because all Christianity came out of Judaism, you have to join the Jewish nation to be a Christian. And what they're saying is you have to assimilate into the Jewish nation. Now, I use that term. I found it in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it says that cultural assimilation is taking on the traits of the dominant culture to such a degree that the differing minority group becomes socially indistinguishable from other members of the society. This is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying, you can come in, but Gentiles, you got to remove all of your cultural distinctives, like an old jacket, and drop them off. And you need to come over here and put on all of our Jewish cultural distinctives. That's how you become a Christian. Yeah, you're included. Gentiles, you're included into God's family, but it's through assimilating into our nation. Man. So again, you can imagine Theophilus is reading this account and saying, what? What do I have to do? Now, are there any Hume Lake fans in the house? Hume Lake Christian camps. Oh, man, love it. Love that place. Went to a bunch of, went to a marriage retreat there with Emily and a bunch of youth camps. So one day, one time years and years ago, I was at a youth camp, high school uh, students in a cabin with me, and uh, we're sitting there, and so I've got my cabin, and I'm like, okay, so I've got four uh, white kids and one Asian kid all going to the private Christian school in town, and then I've got two African-American gangbangers from the hood in Oakland. What is this week going to look like, right? <laughs> Here we go, camp week number one. So uh, we go in, and man, it was interesting. These these boys right here are asking me, can you pray for my grades and my college applications? And then these boys are saying, our friend just got shot and killed in the hood, and we don't know why. Man, it was a heavy week. But it, was, it taught me some interesting things. So we're in, we're in the chapel service. Speakers speaking. All the high school students are listening in. And I start to hear, oh, oh, there's my boys up <laughs> up in the balcony, Dante and Dominic are saying, oh man, you don't even know. Yeah, oh, that's right. Oh, palm my life. What did he say for real? And I, it's like, oh man, okay, boys, let's go outside and <laughs> let's leave all the quiet kids in there, inside the chapel. And then I, and then I realized, what do I, what do I tell them? This was the first time that they had actually been listening to the message. It's just that their form of listening was different. Not wrong, but different. More boisterous, more interactive, but they were tracking with that preacher just as much, maybe even more than some of my other kids were. So what do I say with the, to them? Do I say to them, no, you have to become like all of these upper middle class, white, conservative kids in order to pay attention and see what's happening in our chapel. Is there another way is there another way to help them learn in the midst of our chapel that they don't have to assimilate into a different culture? That's what the Jews and Gentiles are trying to figure out here. So first look what happens when this Christian majority culture, the Jews, um, have a problem with the Christian minority culture, the Gentiles. What do they first do? Chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And look what you don't see here. No swords are drawn. No rants, no riots. 
they all sit down, these diverse Christians, to talk it out. Man, we already have a lot to learn from just that example already. But we haven't solved the problem yet. The issue is still on the table. So Luke brings us in and says, okay, the first guy to speak was Peter. And Luke summarizes what he says here in chapter 15, verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them that by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And then Peter looks into the eyes of the Jewish Christian Pharisee party people. And he says, why are you putting God to the test by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Jewish brothers and sisters, why are you saying that they need to follow the Old Testament law? Because that didn't work for us Jewish people either. For centuries, we tried to follow the Moses, the law that Moses gave us, and we could never do it perfectly. We failed at it. And that's why Jesus came to set us free from the law, because he lived a perfect life. So we didn't have to. So if we couldn't do it, and we're relying on Jesus to be our perfection, and Jesus to save us, why would we expect the Gentiles to follow a law that doesn't even belong to their culture that they don't even know about? How does that make sense? Next, he says, no, we cannot let the law determine our place in God's family. He says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now that will preach. As Christians, our identity is in Christ, not in our lineage, not in our nationality, not in our ethnicity. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And before I am a German person, before I have an American citizenship, before I belong to the Kaufman family, my primary identity is determined by Jesus. I am in Christ that is what's most important about me. And so that's what Peter gets to. Next, we hear from Paul and Barnabas who share about their missionary trip. And they say, yeah, verse 12, they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so this was, um, for the Jewish audience around them, this would have been really powerful because if there's miracles being worked, the Jewish mindset would say, well, God's in that. God approves what's happening there and God is involved in what's happening there because there are miracles being done. And so they share about him. Hey, we were in Lystra, and this guy, this Jew, this Gentile guy had crippled feet, and Paul saw that he had faith, and he stood up, and he started walking around. And there was this guy in Cyprus when we were trying to do ministry, and he tried to hinder us, this sorcerer, and we prayed to God, and God struck him blind, and so he didn't have to be hindered anymore for the ministry. God was working in our midst, and so he is for the Gentiles. Next. In verse 13, we hear from James, the brother of Jesus. And this would have meant a lot to the Jewish uh, audience around there, the whole council, all the elders and the leaders, because James was basically the president of the church of the known world at that point in the first century. Now, Jesus Christ is this true leader of the church worldwide, right? But if we had to look at one person, James was around the top there. So James comes in and he's like, okay, Simeon, Peter, 
verse 14, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos 9, verse 11 through 12. And he talks about rebuilding the tent of David. Uh, Amos is predicting how the Davidic dynasty, King David's line and lineage will be resurrected in a future day. And when that was fulfilled is actually when Jesus, who's a literal descendant of King David, comes and becomes the king of kings when he does his earthly ministry and rises again from the grave. And so James, he quotes this and said, when that all happens, why is God doing that? Why is God rebuilding the Davidic dynasty? So that, verse 17, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Not Gentiles who became Jewish people. No, Jewish people and Gentile people, both seeking after God. So, James says, therefore, verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, let's not heap extra burdens on them when we're not living under those burdens either. It's solely through faith in Christ. Jesus sets us free. So then there's a caveat, verse 20. He says, oh, but we should still write to the Gentiles and tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled and from blood. So like, wait a minute, we just talked about how we're free from the law. What is James saying? What he's saying here, these are actually cultural tips for the Gentiles to say, hey, these aren't things that save you. These aren't things that make you belong or not belong to God's people. But these are tips to help you get along with folks who have a different culture than you do, just to help you be sensitive to what they're sensitive to. So he's given them help. Verse 21, he, James mentions, we don't need to be threatened, Jewish brothers, by this Gentile movement. We still have synagogues all over the world. Our Jewish brothers and sisters are meeting in every city all over the world, teaching the good truths that come out of the Old Testament. We're still going to keep going. It's great. The Gentiles can come in too. So do you notice here, in summary, of all that we just talked about, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas were eyewitness accounts that the Gentiles were included in. Not after they became Jewish, but before. And second, assimilating into Jewish culture doesn't make sense because the law is not what saves us anyway. Circumcision, the Old Testament law, all of that is not what brings us close to God anymore. Jesus is the one that brings us to God. And third, it was God's plan all along to bring the Gentiles in completely. So I use the word, instead of assimilation, incorporation. Now, I'm not talking about starting a business. Incorporate, when I looked it up, is defined as to introduce into a body as an integral part. So the Gentile inclusion wasn't by assimilation. It was by incorporation, saying, you Gentiles, you not only can sit with us and worship with us and be in our Christian movement, you're actually a valuable, essential part of this Christian movement. You are a family member in God's new family. Not just someone who gets to watch us and participate. You are a key member. So God's body is made of many parts, right? 
And we don't need five hands in God's body. We need feet and we need eyes and, and ears and a nose and all that. And so God's body, Christ's church, is uh, Christ's body, God's church, is made up of so many different people. And it's beautiful because it's made up of many different parts. That each one brings a unique element to the body. So how does God want us to include Christians from different cultures, different than ours? God calls us to incorporate them rather than require them to assimilate into our culture. And that's why there's a salad in your notes. Your sermon notes, you've got a picture of a salad. Like, what is that all about? Uh, it's just a suggestion for lunch after. Just kidding. Um, but I mean, you can eat a salad if you want. Uh, the reason why there's a salad there is because sometimes we talk about America as being a great melting pot, right? But actually, that's not what God envisions for his church. Yes, there are a lot of different people coming into it, different cultures all coming in. But what he wants is a salad, a place where every ingredient is still noticeable and distinct and has its own flavor. And yet when you mix them all together in a salad, they're so much better together than if you were just eating a bowl of tomatoes or a bowl of cheese or a bowl of lettuce. A salad is what God's church is like. So God's people shouldn't be in a stew, but mixed like salad, each part in view. That's something you can take to lunch with you. So imagine Theophilus sets his writing down and he breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, what good news. I as a Gentile can be part of this Christian movement. I don't have to become a Jewish person. And neither do you and me, by the way. As all of us here who are not ethnically Jewish, you and I can be thankful for this Jerusalem council that determined that God welcomes all nations in. All people from all different nationalities can have unlimited access to the creator of the universe. And if that is not equality, I don't know what is. That is so great. So God God does some amazing things here. But is that the end of the story? Almost. But we need... Almost. But we need to see how, how do the Antioch Christians respond to this? How does the rest of these... Uh, how do the rest of these people respond? So imagine you're a Gentile Christian leader. Maybe you're Menaean or, or no, maybe you're Lucius or you're Simeon. You're up in Antioch. You sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem and you're just waiting. You're sweating it out. Like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I hope they're doing okay. I hope I don't have to become Jewish because that would just have to leave my whole culture behind. What in the world? And then suddenly you hear, Paul and Barnabas are back. And you're like, oh, great. And you run outside and the whole church in Antioch is excited to have them back. And they've got all these friends from Jerusalem that came up with them. And one of them is named Silas. And he stands up and he reads this letter from the Jerusalem church. And it goes like this in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, Do you see what he's saying? Brothers, brothers. We're all brothers together. We're all in this church together. Greetings. See, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, i.e., they're saying, we didn't send those folks saying you had to be circumcised, but we apologize for all that that happened. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and uh, Silas, to themse- who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Holy Spirit. 
the third member of the Trinity, God himself is the one who pushed this decision through for full Gentile inclusion by incorporation, not assimilation. God's in charge of his church. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled, and sexual immorality. Now basically what Silas is reading about in this letter from the church is he's saying, okay, um, so Gentiles, we just simply recommend that you refrain from some of the more morally loose Gentile cultural things that you were doing before, uh, you know, like incest, idol worship, drinking blood, just so your fellow Christians from Jewish backgrounds who have those Hebrew food customs and their purity laws, so they don't feel too uncomfortable when you're all around the table eating together. Again, these aren't laws. These are saying, hey, here's some cultural tips about this group and some cultural tips about that group, just so you can know that you'll not, not offend each other too easily. Okay, not bad. So he says, if you'll keep yourself from these, you will do where? Well, farewell. <laughs> so there's the letter. So how do they respond? The Gentile Christians of Antioch, they rejoice. They say, yes, great news. This is so good. Thank you that we don't have to assimilate into a different culture to be saved. And thank you for these tips too. These aren't a burden. These aren't requirements for us. These are great. I don't want to offend my Jewish brothers and sisters up here in Antioch either. I want us to all get along. You know what? My values have less priority than God's multi-ethnic church-wide plan. That's what they responded with. That is how they received the news from Jerusalem. Oh, how sacrificial. It's so cool. And Judas and Silas hang out there for days. They bring them in as guests. They're all, and it says they ended up sending them off in peace. So we just we, we learned some great stuff here. There's a happy ending. We we fold up scripture and we say, Wow, what a happy ending. Theophilus closes up Luke's writing and he says, Oh, what a cool story. But then we sit back and we say, How in the world did that work out? <laughs> How is it such a happy ending, right? There were racial tensions, there were regional tensions, there was theological spiritual tensions, there was so much going on. How in the world did that end good? Well, I think there are some few things we can observe and take to the bank with us and apply for us today. When conflict arose, these Christians immediately went to God in prayer. They prayed about it right away. Two, these Christians throughout the whole process were willing to genuinely listen to one another. They had the counsel. They listened to what each other was thinking, each other's stories. They genuinely cared about each other. Three, when facts needed to be reviewed and stuff needed to be ironed out, they had a civil, polite debate with each other in the council. Not a shouting match, not where everyone's yelling at each other and then saying, we won that debate and going back home and like, yeah. They genuinely listened to each other. And then the fifth thing, these Christians consulted Scripture is God's authority on this. Do you see what James did? He referred back to the Old Testament prophets and said, folks, we're not being ethnically inclusive because it's trendy. Folks, we're not welcoming Gentiles into our Jewish culture because we think it's politically correct. We're doing it because God said it's what he wants us to do, because it's God's vision to have a multi-ethnic church. So another thing, they took cues from what Holy Spirit was already doing in their midst how he was already saving Gentiles. 
Next, after God gave them clarity over this issue, they had it solved, they sent the letter back up to Antioch. The Christians were willing to reconcile over their misunderstandings, misinterpretations, misdeeds. They were willing to move forward together in forgiveness. So cool. And lastly, these Christians were even willing to sacrifice some of their own cultural values in order to help their brothers and sisters come on in and feel welcome. Jewish believers agreed, okay, we're willing to sacrifice some things so that the Gentiles can be welcomed in and keep their cultural values. And the Gentiles said, we're willing to follow these four requirements that you gave us in this letter because we don't want to offend our Jewish brothers and sisters either. Everyone's attitude became this. My values have less priority than God's multi-ethnic church-wide plan. And so that's what we're left with. And so I don't know where you're coming from today or what, um, you know, no matter what ethnic background or what kind of a church background you come from or what has been done to you or what you have done, but this is the vision that God gives us to be humble listeners, to be sacrificial lovers, and to come to a place where we welcome people in, not by assimilation, but by incorporation. We have this attitude that my values are less important than God's multi-ethnic church-wide plan. Join with me in prayer, if you would. God, thank you so much for your vision here. And Lord, help us. (laughs) Help us to forgive. Help us to look outside ourselves and help us to be good listeners. Lord, as we talk about this topic, there are lifetimes of hurt and pain and confusion and uncertainty all swirling around this issue. That's why it was such a big issue back then, too. God, we pray that you would give us courage to seek out and welcome people that aren't like us. And God, we pray that you would give us courage to forgive people when they wrong us. God, we pray for boldness, wisdom, courage, and peace to be something that spread all throughout our church, that you would be in the midst of it to do great things here at Cypress Church. Amen.